Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Alan. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Soyoung Kang. She's the Chief Marketing Officer at EOS Products. She earned her bachelor's degree from MIT in architecture. And we start about we talk about that start in thinking about becoming an architect and how it led to her becoming a consultant eventually at Boston Consulting Group. And made her way to her most recent position, which was VP of Brand Development at Bath & Body Works, where she was leading product innovation in a number of different areas, to her current role as CMO at EOS. Since joining EOS about 16 months ago, she's launched a reboot of the core brand, including the creative identity, the strategic vision, product pipeline, messaging strategy, and content. She's also recently debuted a new campaign, Make It Awesome, as well as EOS Flavor Lab, which is a collaboration and co-creation program in their micro-batch program that also involves influencers. So a lot to talk about. I was highly impressed, frankly, by So Young King, and I imagine you're going to learn a lot in this episode. So I hope you enjoy this episode with So Young King. So Young, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. So I want to start with a non-marketing question and ask what drew you to architecture? Oh, uh, <laughs> I have always been somebody um, from the time I was a, a young child who loved 
both art and math. Um, so those are my two favorite subjects growing up. And I've always considered myself um, someone who loves thinking with both the left brain and the right brain. And so when I was actually um, pursuing or looking into colleges, I looked specifically at programs that had strong architecture programs and strong math programs, oddly, because I felt like I could kind of go in either direction. And so when I got into MIT, they actually have one of the top architecture undergrad programs in the country. So I was thrilled, obviously. And I, um, I made the decision to pursue architecture as, um, as part of my education. I actually worked in architecture firms all through college as well, um, during my summers, as well as internships during the school year. And while I absolutely loved studying the field, um, I knew pretty quickly that the profession wasn't going to be right for me. But I continue to have a love for architecture and design in general. It's, it's a personal passion of mine. It, it sort of fuels how I like to think about what I bring to my day to day, even in my workplace which is that left brain and right brain thinking and a love for innovation. Architecture, I don't know, maybe it was where I grew up. It wasn't a natural subject that I would have said, yeah, I could I could go study that. Was there something early on that sparked you to that? Like, I don't know, touring buildings or was it a parent that introduced you to architecture? I'm just curious. I think I was just being a practical child <laughs> <laughs> and thinking that I probably couldn't make a career out of being an artist. So if I couldn't be an artist, that perhaps I could do something that sounded more legitimately professional. And that architecture sounded like something that that was, you know, a respectable career that would still be able to tap into my creative side. Little did I know that marketing was calling my name down the road, which I think essentially it does the same thing for me. It allows me to tap into both sides of my brain. But I don't think there was anything more sophisticated than that in the thought process other than I love being an artist, but architecture sounds like it's a real job. Right. <laughs> well, uh, I think there's a lot of recovering marketers that say I'm in marketing because it legitimizes, it, it helps me make money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're not alone in your profession. Well, so you go to MIT, study architecture, you intern and, and do some work in the field uh, while you're going to school. You came out and you started as a consultant, right? Actually, I um, had a little bit of a detour because, you know, as I mentioned to you, I loved studying architecture. And I was actually fortunate enough to um, be the recipient of a Fulbright Fellowship after uh, my undergrad. So I, while I had applied to consulting firms and various other types of companies for a full-time job after college, I was simultaneously applying for um, this research fellowship. And um, once I got it, I was able to take the one year off so that I could study. Specifically, my, my topic of research was Confucian spatial dwelling development in Korea. So then I traveled to Korea for a year and worked with a graduate research group at a top university doing architectural history and theory research. And then I came back and started my real job. Wow. You've got quite the background and we haven't gotten to the professional side yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's I don't want to go into the the dwellings in Korea, but how did you make that? See, the fellowship's coming to an end, I'm assuming, and you're thinking about what's next. What was that process like? How did you end up in consulting? I had actually been recruited while I was at MIT by a few different consulting firms. Oftentimes, these consulting firms are looking for people who are graduating college, and they may not necessarily have the business experience or expertise, but they have a way of thinking that consulting firms see as being um, strategic potential and a way of breaking down problem solving. 
So consulting firms often interview students who may not have business experience, but they're looking for kind of a spark of uh, problem-solving capability. And I had actually received um, a couple of job offers at the end of my senior year, and there was one job offer that was willing to wait for me to go away and do my Fulbright Fellowship and then come back and take a full-time position. So I started off my career after coming back from my Fulbright Fellowship at AT Kearney, specifically within their financial institutions group. And I worked there for about two years, learning the ropes of how to think like a consultant before I moved on to uh, my next role. Okay. Now tell us a little bit about how you ended up in uh, in marketing. Oh, it would be a few more years before I ended up in marketing. I'll say that I, I think that um, I often like to say that the, the first um, half of my career was as a strategist, really, whether it was in-house or um, as a consultant, I, I spent the first decade plus really honing my skills in the world of strategy. And at the end of that time frame, I was fortunate enough to work with a consulting firm called the Boston Consulting Group. They, I was based here in New York and they had a very strong consumer goods and retail practice. And I really loved the work that I did while I was there, where I was able to work with both retail and beauty companies, and then ultimately made the leap over onto the client side, first as an in-house strategist, and then ultimately as my first operating role in beauty at Victoria's Secret. Gotcha. And then my understanding, was that part of the L Brands group? It was, yeah. So actually, um, funny enough, one of my clients was Bath & Body Works while I was at BCG. And then after I moved over, I, I, I first started off in a, a centralized strategy group that was meant to be sort of an in-house sort of white space opportunities group that worked with all of the various brands. At the time, L Brands owned Bath & Body Works, Victoria's Secret, and a couple of apparel brands like Express and Limited. And I spent about a year in that program. The, the idea was to bring in folks who had non-retail, non-marketing type backgrounds from places like consulting firms or finance, and then have them learn the ropes within the company, and then ultimately place them within the brands in order to, to just create a new type of talent flow into the brands. So the first place that I worked after I worked for this centralized sort of in-house strategic group was working with Victoria's Secret. And that was my first time working in marketing. I was working managing a specific subset of the beauty business in a, what in retail is called the merchant role, which um, at L Brands is sort of a hybrid between a commercial role and a marketing role. And then you, you ended up going, I guess, back to your original client Bath and Body Works and becoming rising through the ranks, if you will, up to head of the brand. It looks like on paper, head of the brand at Bath and Body Works. So I, um, I spent about, I, I actually left Victoria's, I, I moved over from Victoria's Secret um, to Bath and Body Works after a couple of years. And I had a really amazing career journey. I, um, I worked on a subset of the brands, then ultimately took on a, a larger scope and responsibility. And by the time I had reached about a decade at Bath & Body Works, I was managing the personal care side of the business on behalf of the brand. So the personal care side of the business is sort of what I would call roughly half of what the business priority is. So there's the personal care side of the business, and then there's the home and home fragrance side of the business. And so, you know, learning at really amazing brand like Bath & Body Works that's so beloved by consumers, but also just run like an incredibly strategic business was something that I think it was a highlight of my career. And it really kind of continued to forge who I am. If I consider the first 10 years of my career as being learning how to be a strategic thinker, the next 10 years of my career in particular at Bath & Body Works were really understanding how to create brand stories and to understand how to deliver 
incredible innovation to consumers, both in the storytelling as well as in the product. Bath and Body Works also happens to be, as a business, truly a best-in-class example of an organization when it comes to speed to market and agility, and which I find really incredible considering the scale of the business. But that's another thing that that I think I you know I really appreciate having taken away from my Bath and Body Works years is this approach to um, thinking about speed and change and really embracing it and using it as a competitive advantage. So Young, tell us about the current role that you're in and the switch you made going from uh, Bath and Body Works to EOS and becoming CMO. I think about a year ago, if I'm right. Yeah, it's a little over a year ago. I, I can't believe in some ways it feels like it's been longer than that. In some some ways it feels like it's been a lot shorter than that. But um, after I left Bath & Body Works, um, I really wanted to take on something that felt very different in scale. And while I was at Bath & Body Works, we were so focused on, um, in my particular role, so focused on product innovation and product storytelling because of you know just the focus within the business there, that I was really interested in being in a different type of a business model and um, being in a wholesale brand, you are, you're always thinking about how you take your storytelling to the consumer in order to support the business that is being sold through to third party. And so for me, the idea of working in a smaller organization that is more entrepreneurial, as well as taking on a role that would test new um, areas of marketing for me um, was really just incredibly thrilling. And then on top of that, I, I just happened to have tremendous love and respect for what the EOS brand has done. I mean, the, this is a brand that entered into the marketplace um, exactly 10 years ago, actually. This is the, this year we celebrated our 10 year birthday and really um, fundamentally changed uh, what was a, a not particularly interesting category of lip balm. So the category was one that was incredibly sort of utilitarian. It was probably driven, the purchase cycle was probably driven much more by replenishment in the past before EOS joined. And EOS became a brand that really created desirability within the category and grew the size of the category by changing the behavior of consumers and how they engage with, with the product category. So Instead of buying a new lip balm when you run out of your old lip balm or when you happen to lose your old lip balm, EOS created a type of consumer behavior that was about collectability, about trying what's next, about seeking newness and seeking variety. And therefore, that was very good for growing the entire size of the pie. So this was a brand that I had really admired from afar for quite some time. And so I thought it was a really incredible opportunity for me personally to become the first ever chief marketing officer at the brand. What was the first thing you tried to tackle? I know you've accomplished a lot in a short amount of time. But where did you start first? Well, um, first makes it sound like there was an actual <laughs> sequence of events that occurred, <laughs> I think. So I joined the team exactly 16 months ago. And in that time frame, we have, out of just urgency and necessity within the business, we have rebooted the entire brand identity, the look, the feel, all of the packaging. We've grown the product portfolio by over 2x. We've restaged the sort of content content and communication strategy and the pillars of what is the story that we're trying to tell. We've brought on all new outside partners and agencies. And the most important thing was I had to build a team in order to help me do all of this because none of this just was a one woman show. We Most of the team that's in place now within marketing um, here is their average tenor, tenure is somewhere between six to eight months. And so we really built out what I consider an incredible best in class, nimble, but lean team here in order to accomplish quite a lot in the last 16 months. But the first 
first order of business before we did all of that was really to assess what was going on. And that that work needed to happen within the first four weeks of my um, hitting the ground. And so within that four weeks, I had an opportunity to look at the history and understand that the brand was coming from a, a truly incredible place. You know, as I mentioned, it was a brand that I had admired um, and for very good reason in terms of being incredibly in- innovation driven and creating a very different way of engaging with consumers. We like to call ourselves the one of the earliest pioneers of influencer marketing in our category. And there was a lot in the history to tap into, but I would say that um, because I was the first ever CMO, there hadn't been a crystallization of those messages into something simple that could then become the vision for the rest of the organization, as well as our outside partners to really kind of glom onto so that we could all be marching towards the same direction. And so to some extent, it felt like those first few months really felt like we were flying the plane as we were building it. In my role within my first week, the first thing that I was doing was trying to find a new agency to help help us with rebranding our packaging identity. And as any good marketer knows, it, it's pretty hard to re reboot your packaging identity when you don't know exactly what the identity is. And so all of that was happening simultaneously. It's unusual. I mean, I've had a number of CMOs that are, you know, within a year, right, of their starting point or near that. Um, And we talk about the sequence of events, but you're one of the few that have actually described the diagnosis four week period <laughs> where you're trying to get the get it right, I'm assuming, and really get an understanding of what's going on, that core piece, if you will, that then you can build off all of these things and do simultaneous things all at once. Was there anything in that effort in the first four weeks that stood out to you or or was like we had to get this right or understanding X was the best use of time in those first four weeks? I'm just curious if anything stands out. For me, um, understanding the consumer was absolutely the most important thing. My history and my background at Bath & Body Works is incredibly consumer centric. And so that's how I've been trained as a marketer. One of the practices that that I did for um, 10 years, even at my most in my most senior role at Bath and Body Works was to be out in stores, either talking to consumers on a weekly by weekly basis or actually working in the stores. And that's a discipline that really makes the consumer experience with what you're putting out into the world as a marketer very, very real. It's something that it's very different to understand what the strategy or the theory or the concept is behind what you're creating. It's very different to see the visceral reaction from a consumer to the things that you're putting out there in the marketplace. And so for me at EOS, it it was a challenge because I was coming from specialty retail where we owned our own distribution channel. And I was coming into a wholesale brand where unfortunately I didn't have the luxury of owning that. And and all of the data that we had was research data that was coming from, coming through a third party resource. And so being out in the stores, observing what consumers were actually, how they were engaging with our product, spending a lot of time online, pouring through review data, social media, just trying to get a, build out a, a picture in my head about what I thought was resonating with consumers with respect to the brand and the product and what I thought wasn't really helped to crystallize for me the approach that we needed to take, which was for me, the lack of clarity in how the product was appearing to consumers was one of the first things that I needed to tackle. The innovation pipeline is the longest lead time for any marketer. If you own that piece of of the marketing toolkit, the innovation pipeline takes the longest. In our case, because we're a smaller organization, that timeline is fortunately probably much shorter than much larger organizations where you might be looking at something like 18 to 24 months between kicking off an innovation project and being out in market. For us, that entire process, since I've been here, has taken 
12 months and in some cases even shorter than that because we're able to move more nimbly as a smaller organization. But that still is the longest lead time that I had to tackle in order to be able to flip over into the EOS of the future. And so one of the first things that I did within those four weeks was in addition to absorbing all of the consumer data and really trying to build out a picture of what it was that was working and resonating and what wasn't resonating with consumers, then I could create a product vision that would allow us to be able to show up in market in front of the consumer the way that we needed to, that was a pretty radical departure than, than where we were before. I don't know if that was very clear. I feel, like, I feel like the answer was a bit meandering, but I think the point was that, I mean, the first thing that I had to tackle was a reboot of the product-driven identity because the timeline was the longest there. And as I mentioned, we're, we were flying the plane while building it. So I was briefing our agencies at the same time that I was trying to understand the brand. And that all happened literally within the first four weeks of my being here. So that was summer of 2018. By September of 2018, we were actually conducting focus groups and market research to understand whether our new product identity would resonate. And we had incredibly positive signs through that research. By December of 2018, we were talking to our key retail partners um, to be able to bring them along in the journey. And we were really excited by the reception that we were getting there. And now it's fall of 2019 and we're out in market with, with our entire new assortment, um, which is really exciting. And I think it's a real testament to what you can do when you're part of an organization that really values speed to market and really um, can operate in a much more fast and nimble way. Well, you talked about a lot of the work that you did to understand the consumer. How do you describe who is your core consumer? Our core consumer, I think when we shorthand um, who we think our core consumer is, I, I would say we typically um, shorthand by saying that uh, our core consumer is Gen Z millennial. But I think it goes a little bit deeper than that because that's the demographic. But I think there's a, a psychographic of the core consumer that is engaged with our brand that is more of a variety seeker, someone who views EOS really as a beauty product as opposed to a personal care product. And I think that that really shows up in how we speak to our consumers as well. So we we really model ourselves as a beauty brand, although our sort of the distribution dynamics of our brand are probably more, more akin to a CPG or a personal care brand. And that means for us having a really robust presence on social media. It means always looking for positioning that is much more fashion forward and much more trend driven than perhaps some of our um, competitors. And that really resonates with our consumers. So in the course of really trying to understand our consumer, a few of the key insights that came through were, were things like, I love the colors of your product. I love the flavors of your product. These aren't typically things that you would hear about a very functional or utilitarian brand. It's much more about the delight. It's the emotional experience of engaging with EOS. And that all really came through um, for me right from the beginning in that four-week assessment period. So pretty soon after that, while we were kicking off the reboot to our product assortment and product product packaging, we also kicked off a reboot and I would say a more focused edit point around all of our communications. So the, the first thing that we could reboot was our owned social media. So, you know, we have actually a, a very strong social media presence. We have over 2 million followers on Instagram. We have over 6 million followers on Facebook. And we needed to be able to invest in the content to be able to keep ongoing engagement and enthusiasm and excitement within our, really is our fan base on social media. And so, so um, we invested more in being able to create the really engaging, exciting content that would keep our community um, coming back to see what EOS was up to. We also tightened our voice because I think in the course of the, the years that we've been in market, I think our, our brand voice has shifted a little bit to take out a 
some of the the personality, the authenticity that I think a lot of, in particular, the Gen Z audience would, is looking for for brands that they want to engage with in social media. And then lastly, and just as importantly, we launched a new commercial platform, which we call um, the EOS Microbatch. And the whole point of the Microbatch, it, it's actually a, a multi-pronged strategy, which is in sometime in, in the fall when I first started, I felt like there was a really great opportunity for us to do things, to lean further, even further into being a smaller, more nimble brand to create things at a scale that would allow us to get from idea to in market within a few months. And as I, I mentioned that our typical lead times are, are more like somewhere around 10 to 12 months in terms of from idea to in market, but our micro batches are actually designed to be some of our most innovative product that can hit the market within somewhere around anywhere from three to five months or so from idea to in market. And the way that we do that is that we offer them purely on our owned platforms or our owned website, and um, we market them through our owned channels as well. So it's a way for us to connect to our social audience and Give them. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Reward them for being a part of our community by by getting the all of the inside scoop on the newest, most innovative product that we're launching. We do it in a fast and nimble way, which enables us to test innovation in a way that we wouldn't be able to do if we had to scale it up to be produced at the millions of unit level. Instead, we create literally a micro batch. It's a it's a smaller quantity. Once it's sold out, it's done, and we learn. So we learn from that what's working and what's not working. What are the innovations that perhaps we'd want to figure out how to be able to scale them up and offer them nationally. But in that respect, it, it really became sort of a win-win for us, both from in terms of building out the business commercially, as well as building out the brand and the stickiness and the engagement of the brand in particular within our social media platforms. Well, I love the I love the example of the micro batch both from what it is and you know to the marketplace, but also the strategic nature of it. And I would imagine it also helps to keep energy behind the brand because there's always something in the works, something coming, limited time type products, I guess, for lack of a better word. Absolutely. I mean, we were really taking inspiration from the fashion world and fashion drops that are limited in nature and that sell out quickly are not new to the world of fashion, but they're not typically the type of thing that you see in the beauty world. For us, we we felt like we had an opportunity because of our business scale to be able to do something akin to the, the fashion drop. And by doing so, really start to build out this core, this engaged audience among our consumers. Um, so we actually saw 
our email list grow by multiples because folks wanted to know when the next microbatch was going to drop. So it's been a really interesting strategic tool within our marketing toolkit. Got it. I know you've also got new work out, uh, a new campaign, and I've read stories that you're dramatically increasing your spend behind your marketing efforts. So just would love to hear you talk about what you're trying to accomplish and what's been the response thus far. Sure. We just launched about a month and a half ago, our Make It Awesome brand campaign. And our brand campaign was something that was really important for us to get behind and and make a significant investment in because as we have been rebooting our whole brand identity over the past year, it was really important for us to be able to make sure that our target audiences would see the new EOS, the new face of EOS, and also hear all of the different ways that we're bringing awesome into their lives. So the essence of the brand campaign is really that EOS is a brand that has always delivered refreshing moments of awesome into your everyday. So other lip balms may moisturize your lips, but we're the lip balm that is delightful to hold, delightful to look at, and delightful because the flavors are delicious on your lips. And so we're really trying to own as a brand this equity of awesome. So the campaign itself is a total all new um, brand creative. And we're taking a uh, digital first, I would say probably about 98% digitally driven approach to the media. And um, we are about half of our media is on is in streaming video, because you know, that's sort of where our audience is and streaming video display social media places where we, we know we can reach our target consumer. And then we're also doing a few creative aspects of the campaign, like our first ever TikTok campaign, which has been a a really amazing experience. No, I I was going to ask you about that because I think you've got some crazy number of views of that campaign. I want to say it's 3.7 billion last time we talked, but I logged into TikTok the other day. Yes, I do have a small presence on TikTok. <laughs> Very small presence. And it looked like it was up to 4 billion if I was reading the numbers right. It is. I honestly wish I could tell you how I can wrap my head around those numbers, but I can't. Um, I, I've met with my team to kind of dig into hindsighting and really trying to analyze and understand both qualitatively and quantitatively what we think is the effectiveness of our TikTok campaign. And, and I just can't wrap my head around a 4 billion view number, but there you have it. I'm sure there's something within the numbers that is more meaningful than yes, over half the earth's population has viewed our ad campaign. I, I'm pretty sure there's there's something um, something else going on there. But I what I do have to say is that whatever the numbers are, they are big. They are big, and and we're really excited about the potential of being on such an emerging platform in particular because we are a Gen Z relevant brand. And so our TikTok campaign, we ran it in September. It was our first ever TikTok campaign, but I I highly doubt it'll be our last because we're we're getting really great engage. We we got a lot of really great impressions to be able to get out there with our brand story we've gotten really great engagement as well. And then independently, we've been um, tracking through brand research and seeing that the recall is quite high as well um, for us on on TikTok. And so it's a really interesting platform. It's going through a lot of change. The first time that we talked with them, I think we talked with them in the winter of, of 18. So it's 18. Yeah, it's been close to a year that we've been talking with them and engaging them and their their offering has really um, changed in, in during that time frame. And I would say, I think as advertisers, as an advertiser, you're really letting go of a lot of your brand storytelling on the platform. You are putting out there your brand for the user, for the community to um, really create their own stories because it, it's, you know, they're creating their own content and it's it's highly UGC driven. And so the TikTok team has added in a few branded elements, which, you know, kind of helps to balance out the nature of the platform being so UGC driven to be able to have branded ad units as well as part of the campaign. 
campaign strategy. So we had a kind of a multiple element campaign that we ran in September um, so that we can learn, you know, what's working, what's not working. And one of the things that was really important to us was to partner with the right folks on the platform because, uh, you know, as you probably know, TikTok has a number of um, influencers who are um, really, you know, sort of rock stars in their, in, within that domain and have audiences in the millions. And so um, we partnered with a handful of influencers on the campaign in order to show how to bring our hashtag make it awesome campaign to life. So the challenge was hashtag make it awesome. It was, you know, how does EOS make your everyday more awesome? And what was really great was that we worked with the influencers to curate a variety of different kinds of content. Because one of the insights that we as an internal team had early on was that the more the challenge itself and the content can evolve and take on a life of its own, the more likely it was to go viral. And so by having a challenge that was wide enough for the, the TikTok community to be able to kind of put their own spin on it, we were sort of encouraging the hashtag challenge to live longer and to go further. So the influencers that we worked with helped to kind of provide the a type of tutorial on different ways to create awesome content. So their content actually looks very different from each other. And what was great was that then their own particular audiences could see their content, but then you could, you know, you might be following more than one of the influencers and you might see a different way to bring the challenge to life, which I think is part of the reason why to now I, I believe that our hashtag challenge is one of the most successful that, that I've seen on the on the platform. Yeah, it's a it's amazing. I was scrolling through um, the videos, I guess, and it's it's funny what people will, uh, how their creativity comes to life. Frankly, so one thing I have a question about so working with influencers and any advice for marketers that are working with influencers on regardless of platform, if you will. I think that influencers or content creators are really an important part of today's marketing ecosystem. To have those kind of brand ambassadors out there in the world, especially in a world where social media continues to be a really effective way um, to get your brand story out there. I, I think it makes sense to continue to have for us as a brand influencer marketing as a component of our marketing strategy. With that said, I would say that our experience has been the more carefully we select the folks who we work with and the more the relationship and the partnership is an authentic one where we're working with people who truly love the EOS brand, the more the results that we're seeing are actually effective. So another um, initiative that that we put into place, which I also think demonstrates the um, speed to market and agility of the EOS marketing team, is an initiative that we launched last year called the EOS Flavor Lab. And so a couple months in, I'm realizing, wow, we have such a great social media presence. Wow, we, we work with some really amazing influencer marketing partners. And I've always felt that we could do more to really own the equity of flavor. Our consumers are already loving all of our flavors, but how can we really establish ourselves as the experts in flavor? flavor. And so we kind of looked around at each other and we said, well, what if we created something that was like Pantone's color of the year, but instead it's EOS's flavors of the year. And we felt like it made a lot of sense for us to bring for the first time ever, some of our content creation partners into, you know, sort of behind the scenes. We had never done that before. We've never brought them in to be co-developers with us. And so very, very rapidly, in fact, I think it was two months after I joined, we staged a three-day event and flew in 90 influencers from all over the world to come sit with us and help us craft the flavors of tomorrow. So we brought them into the mix and they literally mixed up flavors with us. They had little miniature dishes and they, they you know, had probably about 32 different materials that they could work with. And they helped us create what we launched just this year, this past May, exclusively at Target. We launched Hashtag Eos Flavor Lab. 
And it was, these are our most innovative, most out there flavors that we've ever launched before. And they came along the journey with us, our influencer partners from the creation event where they sort of created some content and shared it with their audience. They also teased when we did a mid-year sort of editing out of the flavor. So we had created a bunch of samples and we were asking for their feedback in order to cull down from the hundred plus submissions that we had that we had created together in order to cull those down further into the the handful that we were going to actually launch with. So we asked for their feedback and they they gave us their feedback. They they did a blind kind of survey and then they also created content that they shared with their communities then as well. And then of course when we launched in May, then they did a big ta-da and an unveil and shared that with their communities at that point. So what we saw was that the engagement continued to get higher and higher. So their fans were along for the journey with them. And when we looked back at what the typical industry benchmarks are, um, you know, within our category for engagement of on influencer content, as well as even for our own history and our own historical benchmarks, we were beating them by easily two to three X. And that was because it was an authentic partnership. The partnership itself was longstanding. It wasn't just sort of like a one and done. And these were people who were invested, the, the influencers, I mean, were invested in the journey and therefore their fans became invested in the journey along with them. So, um, my long-winded way of saying that I think when when you do it right when you when you do it with um, integrity and authenticity influencer marketing can be an incredibly powerful tool yeah no it, and I think you you've described a case study in how to do it how to do it the right way so thank you for doing that thank you for sharing well I've got a couple more questions one last question and then we'll kind of switch gears a little bit you have done so much and the organization has done so much in the last 16 months what was the toughest part I mean it doesn't have to be a specific initiative or campaign I'm just curious what was the toughest part I mean that's a lot of change to be driving it was a lot of change and I think that the toughest part of it was truly the flying the plane while we were building it. And I don't mean that just in terms of the strategy or the content or the tactics, but I even mean that in terms of um, the building out the organization because we wanted to be able to, we couldn't get there fast enough, right? So we wanted to be able to reboot the brand and launch into the next phase of growth for EOS, which you know I, I truly believe that we are embarking on a, an incredibly exciting time as a brand, but we wanted to get there really fast. And so we were kicking off a lot of initiatives without having all of the people in place, without having having all of the information or the data in place, and also without even having all of the high-level strategic framework in place. And so we were we were starting to do before we could figure out what we were trying to do. But I've always really had a philosophy, and I think this is based on, you know, where I come from, both from as a consultant as well as, um, you know, my training at, at Bath & Body Works. But I would rather get it 80% right and maybe I've missed 20% of it, but I'd rather get there fast because I don't need to perfect to 100% and then learn too late that I missed the opportunity. And so there are a lot of different kind of cliches out there in the marketplace, you know, it's sort of like fall on your face, not on your behind, all of these types of things that that are out there. But I, I, I truly believe in all of them, that I, I really believe that doing something fast and getting it mostly right is way better than doing something slowly and, doing, and getting it 100% right. Because whether you're right, if you're too late, to the party. If you're too late, then you've missed the whole thing. Well, I do want to switch gears and get to, we've talked about you at the beginning. I want to get back to you. And I love this question. It's probably my most favorite question. Is uh, is there something in your experience, in your past that defines or makes up who you are today? <laughs> probably everything in my past makes up who I am today. But I, oh gosh, I think that if I were to take a personal lens on that, I would say that probably the most defining experience it up for me 
has been my immigrant experience. I immigrated to this country when I was uh, two and a half, and I was in a lot of ways, personally, I spent a lot of my years trying to really understand how to become a part of, of the culture and how to become a part of my new, sort of my new normal, which made me a really avid studier of cultural norms and of just human behavior in general. So I was always looking around outside of me, you know, when I, when I started kindergarten, I didn't speak English because I had grown up in a household that was all Korean, that where we were only speaking Korean to each other. And so I started kindergarten, even though I'd been living in the U.S. for a couple of years already, completely having to kind of start over for language. And it just made me incredibly attuned to how, what are social norms? How, how do people behave? How can I fit in? So that's one aspect of the immigrant experience that I think has been really formative for me, because even today, I absolutely love thinking about the psychology of marketing. How do people think? How do people accept information? How do they process information? It's one of the, one of my favorite aspects about being a marketer. The second piece of being an immigrant that has truly shaped who I am is from a very young age, I had to take an outsized role within my family. I was the oldest person in my family who spoke English fluently. And that meant that I had to pick up and do things that I had never done before. I remember being 14 years old and helping my family pick our health insurance plan. I had to go through all the documentation, the the brochures, compare the plans and make a recommendation to my parents. I had to help out with filing tax returns. There are a lot of things that I had to learn how to do and not be afraid to do and figure out on my own because my family just needed me to help. So I think that that has created in me just a a bit more of um, an appetite for chaos, an appetite for learning new things that I've never done before. And, um, you know, I hope I continue for the rest of my career not being afraid to take on difficult challenges because if I could do that at 14, I hope I can continue to do um, really great things as I I progress as a professional. It's an amazing story, amazing experience. So thanks for sharing that. Curious if there's any advice you would give your younger self if you're starting back out again on this journey? Well, you know, I don't know how to answer that. You know, I and I say that because, of course, there are many things that I could have done differently as my younger self, but they all led to the person that I am today. And I think that the older I get, what I will say is that I recognize that there really isn't a master plan in place. There may be an ultimate goal, but there isn't. I've realized that there are a lot of different ways to get to the ultimate goal. And I really believe that life and your career is really a, it's just a series of calibrations where you're just sort of like ping-ponging little by little towards whatever goal you set for yourself. But I think maybe when I was younger, I thought that there was only one way to get there. And I thought that if I mapped it out properly, that, that I would I would end up there. And, and I could, never could have imagined sitting in the seat that I am today as the CMO of a great brand like EOS. I couldn't have imagined that 20 years ago. <laughs> That's good advice in and of itself. I wonder, I mean, you, you, you're a marketer, you, you're an avid observer of what's going on. You've described that in many different settings. Are there brands or companies or causes that you follow that you think other should, people should take notice of or you just find purely interesting yourself? Well, I happen to love the beauty industry and I love it not just because I've been eating, sleeping, breathing it for the last, uh, I guess, I don't know, 15 years or so, but really because it continues to be a very dynamic place to be. Um, There's still a lot of growth happening. There are a lot of dynamics in place that are um, incredibly exciting. There's a lot of entrepreneurial activity, so much creativity in both product marketing as well as the content marketing. And I feel like as I look towards what's happening in society at large, 
large in terms of trends that you're seeing in sustainability, in terms of diversity and inclusion, um, in terms of thinking about wellness and, and well-being. Um, these are all things that have impacted activity within beauty and have created the rise of so many interesting niche brands and businesses, I think faster than I would say I've, I've seen in a lot of other categories. And so it's an interesting category to keep an eye on, the beauty overall, even if you're, you don't work within beauty, because it seems like a lot of what's happening in trends at large are really hitting beauty at the forefront. I like it. I like it. So two more questions and then we'll wrap up. But uh, I'm going to try out a, a new question. I, I usually ask a different one. And, and with you, I think there's a different question I should be asking people, which is as a marketer, maybe as a CMO, but more importantly, as a marketer, how do you think about what is the single or the one of the most attractive opportunities or you could go a different direction and pitfalls or threats that we as a, a function and as people in the function are going to face? I'm going to say this, and this is both for me as an individual and within my individual and specific circumstance in my current role, as well as more broadly. But I feel like the biggest thing for all of us to embrace is change. I feel like that sounds incredibly cliche, but I, I really believe it. How much change have we experienced in the last 10 years and how much more are we going to experience in the next 10 years? There are some things that are always going to be true within the world of marketing. There, there are these just fundamental kind of human truths that are driven by us as human beings. I do believe that people crave great storytelling because there's a lot of noise in the world and great stories create sense and order out of that noise. I always believe that great marketing starts from great product and that great marketing could maybe hide bad product for a very little while, but consumers are very savvy and they figure it out after a while. And then I also believe that great value, not cheap, but value from money that consumers spend will always lead to growth. So these are things that I just believe kind of as, as being my own personal truths. But what I, what I don't know is I don't know what the specific stories are going to be. I don't know how we're going to reach consumers in the future. I don't know how and with what tools. So those are the things that are going to change so dramatically and, and, and probably faster in the next 10 years than it has in the last 10 years. And as marketers, I think it's just really critical for us to not be afraid of that change and to recognize when something is a the difference between a fundamental truth versus the tactics and the how, which will always change and evolve because because human beings always change and evolve too. Well, my last question, and you may have just answered answered it, and that's okay if you have, is what do you feel like the future of marketing is going to look like? My guess is more change. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely more change. But, you know, I think that there's another thing that I think about a lot in in my role and, and in, is my, in my personal growth um, as a CMO, which is I think about, and I know there, there have been a lot, there's been a lot of press about this lately, but I think a lot about how the CMO role is evolving itself and how even in my day-to-day, -day, and, and partly because we're such a lean team and I have to wear a lot of hats in my role. But in my day-to-day, -day, I have to flex between thinking about the consumer, but then also thinking about how we market to our customers. I have to think about the needs of the brand, but I also have to think about the needs, the commercial needs of driving the business. And so I think that um, this isn't just something that I'm experiencing as a as a first-time CMO. I think this is something that's happening across the, the landscape of marketing in general, where marketers are being asked to really take a flexible and nimble approach to how they drive growth and value in their organizations and in their brands every day. And that's something that I, I think isn't going to change and it'll require all of us to evolve with it. Well, so young, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It oh, thank you. <laughs> it was great speaking with you and I really appreciate the opportunity. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me. 
If you're new to marketing today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.